Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Three mistakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. This is the Falcoholic Podcast, the official podcast of the Atlanta Falcons on the SB Nation Podcast Network. My name is David Walker. You can call me DW, and I'm joined by my normal co-host, Gina Kelly, not Gina Thomas. Gina, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you, David? Fantastic. Um, As the NFL season is drawing closer and closer, we wanted to get your questions, the listeners' questions, um, about this very strange season answered by some true experts Uh, So we asked uh, two of our favorite podcast guests over the past several months to come back uh, and answer some of these questions. True experts in their fields. Uh, We're going to start first with uh, Dr. Saad Omer. He is an American vaccinologist and the director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Uh, Dr. Omer, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Yep. And joining us uh, in a little bit, hopefully, is Dr. Zach Binney uh, out of Emory University. He is an epidemiologist, a sports fan, is an author at uh, Football Outsiders. He has been delayed. Hopefully, he'll be able to join us. If not, I'm sure Dr. Omer uh, will certainly be able to answer many of these questions. Um, So let's just jump into it. Uh, I don't want to waste any one time here. Um, Dr. Omer, one of the first questions we got, and I think this is something I've personally seen a lot of people ask about. and it, it's, I'm curious uh, about your answer on this. We're seeing a lot of statistics being thrown around about you know, case totals and whatnot. What statistic do you think people should be more focused on? The, the total cases or hospitalizations, or is there even maybe another statistic uh, that you consider to be uh, the most valuable in gauging where we are uh, with this pandemic? That's a really good question. And I think there's more than one statistic, but a finite number of statistics we should focus on. And we should focus on trends, uh, not just the absolute numbers. Ideally, if we had perfect testing and if we were getting all uh, cases, the easiest and the most uh, rational thing to do is to follow the, um, the what we call the population incidence or point prevalence, meaning how many people are infected over um, a population denominator. But we don't have, uh, you know, and for various reasons, we don't have uh, a testing system that is catching everyone. We all know that. Mm -hmm. So short of that, um, hospitalization is one way of tracking people who are severely ill. Deaths, uh, unfortunately, is another way of tracking, especially trends in deaths. Mm -hmm. But the problem with both deaths and uh, hospitalization as statistics is that there is a lag. So so what happens is that you get infected and then it takes a few days, five to seven days when you develop symptoms and then you start transmitting um, the virus and then you seek um, care after a few days and then sort of the hospitalization decision 
is not even immediate for some people, but but a, a fraction of them are hospitalized and so on and so forth. And then it takes, uh, unfortunately, the people who are going to die, it takes uh, a, a few weeks for them to actually die and so that uh, statistic to register. Right. So overall, if you are looking at severe outcomes, hospitalization and deaths, if you're looking immediately, I would say the positivity rate, but not just the absolute number, the transit positivity rate. So any... Uh, rate which is less than 5%, meaning uh, of the tests that you have performed, how many are positive of COVID-19 is good. It's uh, pointing in the right direction. 10, 15% is concerning. Um, and then, uh, as I said, looking at trends is more helpful uh, than just looking at absolute numbers. Right. Uh, so Dr. Binney has actually joined us. Uh, Dr. Binney, thank you again for joining us on the Fakahalat podcast. Yes, my pleasure. Sorry, I was a few minutes late. Oh, no, you're good. Uh, your timing was perfect, actually. Uh, the, the first question that we uh, just asked Dr. Omer that we got from our readers and listeners was which statistics should we be more focused on, cases or hospitalizations, or is there another one that you in particular um, are, are keeping a, a track of? And Dr. Omer, I think you heard the tail answer um, or the tail end of his answer. So what are your thoughts on the statistics and what people should be eyeing right now? Uh, I did hear the tail end of Saad's answer, and I don't think I have anything to add. I think that was uh, brilliant. It's a, uh, it's a combination of things that you want to be keeping an eye on, but uh, test positivity going up is bad, hospitalizations going up or staying high, uh, any of these metrics is bad, and uh, deaths, but they're going to kind of trail everything else because the virus takes time. You know, it infects you, then you get sick enough to get hospitalized, but that can take a long time. And then uh, you die, and that can take even longer. So these are uh, what we might call lagging indicators, meaning uh, they take time. So you see cases rise, then hospitalizations, then deaths. Uh, but you can also keep an eye on, uh, on test positivity rate. Um, another question that we got from our readers, um, and this is one that I really would like to just get answers on the record from experts. And I'm going to try to be very diplomatic about this. There's a lot of information about um, the, the reason for the high number of cases in the U.S. And somebody did ask, you know, is the high case count a reflection of how much testing the U.S. is doing, or is the pandemic really that out of control here in the United States? This is a conversation that I can't believe I'm still having with people, but people seem to be very confused about this. So I can start with the answer, and, and I'm sure Zach has um, sort of more to add. I think it's, uh, there are multiple reasons for this. So yes, uh, testing, increase in testing also yields more cases. But that's, we know that with reasonable level of evidence that that's not the full answer. The outbreak, the other indicators um, suggest that there is, the R outbreak is worse uh, than other outbreaks, and, and, a, and a good comparison is other developed countries or the other organization of uh, the OECD countries the, the, or, or G7 countries that um, are at similar level of development. Ours is worse off. Um, and, and so you, because it's not just that our testing uh, is, uh, you know, it's not just an increase in testing, but also we have hospitalization numbers. We have mortality numbers. Um, and, and so we have other indicators that support the notion that our outbreak is worse. The other thing I would say that why do, is, is, are such differences? Because outbreaks are very unforgiving. 
And they enter, if you look at the curve, you know, everyone talks about flattening the curve. If you look at these curves, these are sort of, they are what we call exponential dynamics. So outbreaks uh, sort of rise a little bit slowly and then, then they take off because there's enough infection in the community to go around and there are enough susceptibles that more, one person is infecting more than um, other people. So if you intervene at earlier stages, you can intervene before that takeoff. So therefore, uh, relatively, what, what may seem as uh, minor differences, but they are not minor because uh, outbreaks are unforgiving. If, but if, they, if the policy interventions are done earlier on, countries can control and populations can control things early and keep things under control. And so the differences in policy can yield um, major differences in cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's clearly what we're seeing here in the U.S. Yes, and look, I know you say you can't believe that you have to answer this question, uh, and, and it's <laughs> fair to get frustrated, and experts like us do too, but it is important to understand that there's a lot of misinformation out there, and I understand yes. that people are hearing this, and these are really these are fair questions for them to ask us. All I can say is that I hope that that you're coming in with an open mind and in good faith. And when you hear experts tell you something that, that you are um, receptive to and, and will trust us to communicate that. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's our job. That's incumbent upon us. That, that is our responsibility. And I couldn't agree more that uh, the epidemic is absolutely out of control in this country. It is not due uh, to just more testing. Uh, we are doing a lot of testing, but the fact that uh, still a large percentage, you know, north of 10% in many areas uh, of our tests are coming back positive tells us we're not doing enough. We need to be doing way, way more. Um, and uh, that, you know, the increase in cases uh, when we saw it uh, kind of in July was way outpacing the number of new tests. And that's why you saw the test positive percent go up. And that is a clear indication that the true number of cases is rising and it's not driven uh, purely by increases in testing. The other way that you can be sure of that is hospitalizations aren't affected by testing. Neither are deaths. So if you see hospitalizations or deaths go up, that's an increase in cases uh, that's not due to testing. And yeah, Sorry, well, go ahead. Oh yeah, that's really helpful context. Yeah, so if I may add a couple of uh, things uh, to, to that that uh, deaths initially didn't go up, but as expected, that they started going up, there was a lag between the, um, the cases going up and then the deaths uh, started going up. Um, they hopefully, uh, our peak of deaths will be lower than our previous peak. The reason I'm saying is that we are able to, so there have been progresses. We don't have a quote-unquote cure for COVID-19, but we have more treatments now than before. That is not at all the full solution, but it helps a little bit in keeping the mortality rate slightly lower, somewhat lower. In terms of testing, one of the things I'll add is that it's not just the number of tests. One of the things that we are seeing um, increasingly, initially, uh, you know, I thought that it would go away as the testing capacity um, increases and things get streamlined, is the so-called turnaround time. So the time between, so the reason why we do testing is not just, you know, to have a test result and display it on your wall. It is to be able to isolate 
and then trace their people's contacts, uh, sort of people who have uh, who, who have symptoms, etc., and they or otherwise they got tested, um, and and they came positive, not just to isolate them, um, usually at home, but also do their con- uh, trace their contacts and and quarantine or isolate their contacts and so on and so forth. There are different protocols for that. But if you test today and you go for a test, you get swabbed today, and your test comes back seven to ten days later. You have the horse has not just left the barn; it's it's out there um, because we need to. So the infectivity period of someone is actually peaks right after you develop symptoms. That's usually when people get tested, but you know certainly within the first week, uh, and, with, uh, and even within that, within the first few days after symptoms is the highest. Uh, level of infectivity. And once, if you have missed that period, that person, even if they uh, look at their test, it's, it's a reflection of their past status, not so where you can take action. So that's the other reason why, even with increased numbers, we ha- you know, our control strategy has been less optimal than, than a few other places. Right, yeah. absolutely. Uh, one of the next questions we had, um, and Dr. Benny, I'll, I'll go to you on this one first. Um, how likely are NFL players, uh, personnel, uh, so I guess coaches and the surrounding uh, uh, employees, and fans, how likely is this group to be infected in large numbers under the NFL's current plan, in your opinion? Well, I think that's really the question, right? And all we can do right now, uh, well, we can look at a few things. Uh, Number one, what's happened so far uh, with players reporting to training camp? It's a, and staff, it's a little bit hard to tell because we're not getting a lot of clear data about how many players who are placed on the COVID list were placed there because they tested positive or whether they just had uh, contact with a case, which can also place you on the list. But it seems like Uh, the numbers of people showing up infected have been relatively low uh, relative to other leagues. And we have not had uh, any instances so far of large outbreaks uh, at training camps after players arrive. So that's good. But we saw the same thing uh, in major league baseball uh, during their summer camp period. And then, uh, you know, after a few weeks, whether it was because of just having a little bit of good luck at the beginning or people letting their guard down or whatever it was, they have since had two large outbreaks on the Miami Marlins and the St. Louis Cardinals. So could we see the same pattern in the NFL? Quite possibly. Um, You know, the NFL and MLB are trying to run very similar playbooks. Uh, Players and staff are living at home. Uh, in their communities, in contact with their families, and therefore they could bring the virus into the league. Um, and you're relying on testing to stop that from becoming outbreaks. You're relying on testing and physical distancing and really minimizing the time that you're spending indoors at team facilities and stuff like that to keep one case, one case, rather than turning into a big outbreak. So are the NFL's protocols sufficient to do that? If you're looking at Major League Baseball, I, I would be worried that, uh, that maybe not. Uh, the NFL might say, uh, look, we think that, uh, you know, we're learning from what went wrong uh, with MLB. Uh, our players are going to take this more seriously. Our staff are going to take this more seriously and be more careful. And, uh, and we think we can do it. And maybe they're right or wrong, uh, but we're going to see uh, in the next few weeks 
uh, I think. So I'm, I'm definitely worried. Uh, I think that it's obviously safer to try to come back inside a bubble, and, and arguably that might be the only safe way to do it in the U.S. Uh, right now with the amount of virus that we have. But, uh, but the NFL is going to run MLB's playbook and see, and, uh, and we're just going to have to wait it out and see what happens. Uh, I will say that the NFL, I think, has two disadvantages relative to MLB. One is it's more people. That's simply, it's a numbers game. It's more chances for the virus to get in. And then there's a lot more close contact. So if the virus does say, get on the field, either somebody infected gets on a practice field or God forbid in a game, uh, there's a lot more opportunities for that virus to spread uh, both within a team and across teams uh, than there is in MLB. Yeah, excellent points. Uh, Dr. Romer, your thoughts? Yeah, so so the the couple of... um, um, Additional causes uh, for concern for NFL, you know, even compared to MLB. One of the things is that, believe it or not, right now, because of the weather, so we knew, so I I think we, you know, I've been saying for a while, I've been on the record, that what we expect, um, we expected in the spring was that the virus will continue to transmit over the summer. Uh, because we had a previous pandemic, which didn't kill a lot of uh, people, but it was a full-on pandemic in terms of infection in 2009 that showed us and other um, sort of similar respiratory infections showed us that when so many people are susceptible, uh, there is transmission in the summer. Uh, but we expected that the transmission efficiency may go down. So it's um, on a sort of case-by-case basis, the, trans- uh, the transmission of the virus will be less efficient based on higher temperature, higher humidity, et cetera. There's actually a little bit more evidence of that. And so believe it or not, we are not in the optimal transmission efficiency season right now. We are getting, we got the rates um, uh, of uh, infection and cases and hospitalization and unfortunately deaths because of high number of susceptibles, uh, uh, even in July and, and, and even now, but when it comes to the um, NFL season, it um, straddles, it, 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 it overlaps with the conditions that are more optimal for the virus transmission. So that gives me you know, one more point to be concerned about. The other thing, the good thing is, look, daily testing is a reasonable strategy. Uh, but then the, as I understand, the strategy is to look for it, uh, look for... Uh, you know, the utility of the strategy for the first couple of weeks. I would say there should be a serious consideration for, even if things are going well, to continue that approach uh, of frequent testing beyond the first two weeks. Right. And and the reason I'm saying is that it, we are all humans. Uh, and, you know, you, you know uh, professors are humans and uh, NFL players with large contracts are humans as well. Uh, and And so... Uh, with all of that, you know, there is a human, there's a natural tendency to be a little bit more complacent after the first few weeks of things going well. And in, um, so to therefore, I think it may be, there should be a higher threshold to remove that uh, frequency of testing after the first few weeks. And then on top of that, on top of the behavioral parts of these uh, things, uh, there is this, again, overlap with the, the so-called respiratory season, the so-called higher efficiency of vaccine of uh, virus transmission. 
mm-hmm. and so so that's the uh, other point I, I think uh, th- that should be considered. So you're yeah, you're saying. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dr. Benny. Oh, no, I was just going to say the last thing you asked about was the safety of fans. Yes. And um, I, I really hope that they're not going to end up putting any fans in the stands this fall. I think that's begging for the potential for a super spreader event that we really can't afford at a time when we're struggling to even open schools. Right. right? We have to prioritize contacts. And I'm sorry, but I don't think NFL games should be a priority. And I am particularly particularly disturbed by the reports that we have from more than one team that they're trying to get plans approved for ten to twenty thousand people in indoor stadiums. Yeah. With with retractable roofs perhaps, but that those are still indoor concourses, indoor bathrooms, indoor concession stands. To me, that is just completely absurd. Uh, given the situation that we're facing as a country right now, it it just it boggles the mind, uh, and it it shows a real messed up uh, list of priorities. Yeah, I, I agree. I can see the rationale. So, I obviously there is a uh, the varying definitions of essential, etc. So, games with fans, I don't see any justification before we have uh, a vaccine. Um, Games without fans, I, I understand the value, the societal value of sports, um, the value, the, the mental health value at a population level, if we have something to look forward to, to, to something to cheer for. I get that. But, but I absolutely agree that, uh, and even that under, under sort of, you know, with, with rational decision making and so on and so forth. But I think, I think that it's, it's, it's playing with fire to have even, even people say, that um, you know, it, it's half the density or half the number capacity uh, of fans. That just doesn't add up because you know there are still lines at the bathrooms um, and yeah. all sorts of other things. It's not just the relative numbers, but it's the absolute numbers as well. Uh, and so, so I think there should be planning to keep players safe and the staff safe and 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 sort of continuity of uh, operations. But I don't think um, I think. Um, the teams should not consider putting fans uh, in, in, in the stands. Yeah, there's actually a tool from Georgia Tech uh, that you can use to um, estimate the probability that somebody infected with COVID-19 uh, is going to be at an event that's thrown. And when you start getting into just 100 people or 200 people um, at an event with the amount of virus that we have and the degree of transmission that we have right now, much less if it gets any worse uh, in the fall with a seasonal worsening, um, it is almost as big a guarantee as anything you will ever see in life uh, that somebody in that group has COVID-19. So if you end up uh, spending time in the concourse with that person, it's certainly not a guarantee that you'll get infected, but, but why put yourself in that position, right? Like Saad said, we're trying to we're trying to avoid non-essential large gatherings, and that to me is the definition of non-essential. And I think everybody everybody needs to make sacrifices. And I don't think that it's it's totally crazy to ask uh, that we don't go to sporting events until we've either have something like a vaccine or a silver bullet treatment or uh, the epidemic under control. Mm-hmm. I mean, some areas like New Zealand got the epidemic completely under control and uh, were then able to have fans again. 
but that's that's the point that you have to get to the New Zealand, Vietnam, South Korea level, and we have not shown the uh, the interest in getting to that point. So you don't just then get to shortcut and say, well, we need fans, we want fans, so we're going to have fans. You didn't put in the work. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. Absolutely. I do just want to emphasize that we also asked you both that same question on the last podcast. And Dr. Benny, that was when you asked if it was okay if you (laughs) on the podcast. So (laughs) uh, your feelings were made strong about it and for very good reason. One of the other arguments that um, people have presented to me when I've said we shouldn't have fans in stadiums, you know, we should all be taking this more seriously. You should be wearing a mask. If you go out of the house, you should be social distancing. And especially as, you know, with the college football season um, being canceled by a number of um, conferences here over the past couple of days, um, you know, people say, well, these players are young and healthy, you know, they're, they're in peak physical condition, you know, so what if they get COVID, they're going to be fine. But we're seeing more and more reports like Eduardo Rodriguez from the Red Sox, who, now has developed a heart condition after having COVID with just, he was just mildly symptomatic. Um, But, you know, now he's got an issue with his, with his heart that's lingering. And so what's your perspective on, um, you know, the, the long-term health risks posed by COVID? I know that we're still learning more about this as we go along, but as things stand right now, you know, what are your thoughts on that? So Ed Young, a a writer for the Atlantic, a science writer for the Atlantic sort of said something that, that really is, um, struck me as, as as true and insightful that the wider pandemic is a weirder pandemic, and the reason why it is said that if you uh, if, if something spreads quickly and fast and widely, it encounters the heterogeneity, the variability, the mosaic of our immune systems. It's not just one system; there is variability, and so when it in or you know not just immune system but other parts of our physiology. And so therefore, when, init- you, um, when a virus that is widespread encounters that variability, you start seeing these things where you wouldn't expect a healthy young person getting these kinds of um, outcomes. And, and so there is that, um, you know, th- this phenomenon of um, more long-term outcomes that we are still uh, starting, you know, learning about it. So, so if you think about it, uh, you know, the, the virus is still less than a year old. Um, and it's, it's like we're in the seventh, eighth month of, of this virus spreading it. And in the U.S., it's even shorter than that. And so we, most people, even, even during the early during the initial phase of people who were infected in March, April or, or got sick in March, April, we are still following them up and learning about uh, sort of the various outcomes. So, so we need to be careful about not uh, sort of having the final word on the impact based on a few months' data, because a lot of these things uh, that impact, uh, that have this widespread effect on the body, and that we know already, 
uh, that because of the so-called, we call it the cytokine storm, where there is this misfiring of the immune system very widely, it affects different organs um, and, and then leads to other cascades. Uh, or for example, you have these uh, sort of clots, uh, microclots, et cetera, and then there are uh, neurological outcomes and so on and so forth. We are only learning about the medium to long term effects about of 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 this uh, virus, and we wouldn't be we shouldn't be surprised if if we um, you know find out more about uh, some of the more severe outcomes. Yeah, uh, w- there is a lot that we don't know, but we're seeing evidence uh, in Eduardo Rodriguez, and uh, there seem to be some issues of myocarditis or inflammation of the heart muscle in uh, college football athletes. So that certainly raises my level of, uh, of concern. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you think about with NFL players is some of these are big guys. Now, BMI, body mass index, which is what people usually use to define uh, obesity, is a very imperfect measure, especially for athletes. My favorite statistic uh, that I present to my students on this, not trying to get political, just saying, Imagine in your mind's eye, Donald Trump and Derrick Henry, the running back for the Titans, they have the same BMI, okay, because it's only height and weight that go in. Okay, so having a high BMI isn't necessarily the be all and end all of, oh, these guys are high risk. But when you start looking at offensive and defensive line, you know, some of these guys are carrying around quite a bit of, of extra weight. Uh, fat weight because it it helps them right they're not 100% muscle 0% body fat um, and even if you're mostly muscle there's still something to be said for lung function and especially uh, you know the ability of, of ventilators uh, to work on bigger people uh, just no matter where the bigness comes from so so there is some reason I think to be concerned especially about linemen who are both at at higher risk, I would think for contracting the virus because of the amount of close contact that they endure on the field and perhaps uh, at worse risk for a bad outcome because of their body type. You know, how does that compare to a wide receiver or how does that compare to somebody of their same height and weight in the general population who isn't as muscular? I don't know. Uh, They're probably not uh, at the same risk that say an 80 year old in a nursing home is Right, but it, but it may be a little higher than you would think from twenty-seven-year-old elite athlete. Right, right. Uh, but the truth is, we we don't know. But it's something that uh, that I know everybody is concerned about, and and rightly so. Um, and I know we're we're pushing past the time. I do have one last question. If if you're both game for it, sure. If you could ask me about some good news, I don't want to be called Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I do think this will lead into that actually. Um, so, you know, and you both have said, you know, we're, we're learning more and more about this virus. It is still, we're still in the middle of, you know, even just the discovery phase, but uh, it, it seems like, and Dr. Omer, I think you hinted at this earlier, we are getting better at treatments and we are inching closer and closer, not even just to a vaccine, which the news does seem positive about the developments happening there but to uh, really good treatments. I mean, we know, you know, some early studies are showing that interferons could potentially be an early uh, prevention option. Um, Again, that still needs to be validated. 
Um, others are showing that, you know, if, if corticosteroids are given at the right time by, you know, doing blood tests, that it can drastically reduce the, fa- the fatality rate. It's just showing that science, science is moving quickly in this day and age, which is, I think, great news. Based on that, based on the fact that we are making really tremendous progress in a short period of time, do you think the NFL would be wise to even just consider a potential delay to the start of the season? Because right now we're looking at starting the season in you know, mid-September. Even just two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, do you think that that's enough time where we could see some of these treatments begin to get validated so that if players do get sick, um, that you know, maybe there's going to be something that we, we turn the corner on something uh, where we have better treatments. We have, we've bought enough time that science validates. We get peer-reviewed studies. Uh, do you feel like that even just a slight delay um, or maybe even a two-month delay would buy enough time that it would make an NFL season even more likely than it is right now? So do you want to go first, Zach? Uh, I'd be happy to... Uh... Sure. Then you can, then you can close it out. Um, So a delay is interesting to me because yes, it could buy us more time to get the virus under control or for uh, better treatments to come around. The problem with delaying right now though, is that you're getting into flu season and you're getting into any seasonal effect. So would the NFL be better off like pushing back two months to start in November yeah, I, I don't think that's what I would be advising. And I certainly wouldn't be, um, be confident in that. If you wanted to push back to the spring, to the other side of flu season, then you're sort of avoiding that uh, issue. But that's a long delay. And then what are the knock-on effects for the 2021 season? So right. I'm sure they, uh, they really uh, do not want to do that. What I would see as the most likely way that we improve is that we really move our focus to more rapid tests that identify people who are infectious. Maybe they're not every bit as sensitive at capturing, uh, you know, the leftover RNA at the end of a disease uh, or when people have relatively low viral loads and aren't very uh, infectious, if infectious at all. But if we can really get uh, some of these tests that can be done in a few minutes for about $1 to $2, they're a little paper strip, almost like a pregnancy test. If we could get those produced in the hundreds of millions and distributed to people, uh, that would really go a long way, I think, towards uh, both helping us as a nation control the pandemic and also give the NFL a tool that it could use to really be fairly certain that they're keeping infectious players off the field, which I'm a little bit worried about now uh, with their reliance largely on PCR tests that, uh, that take some time to get back. Interesting. So you, you like the idea of uh, super widely available cheap testing as, as a great tool in the toolkit to help the season be more productive. I do. I've been thoroughly convinced uh, by the arguments that I've seen on that. I don't know if Saad agrees, but, uh, but I've, I've been convinced. Yeah, I agree. So at the individual level, they may be imperfect, but they, if they're mass deployed, so, so the key is to have, um, so, so to, do, to make that trade-off between the, the long turnaround time that uh, renders the, the utility, um, the disease control utility of even the most uh, perfect test um, sort of invalid or, or, or less useful, um, and then to trade it off by fast, cheap, but then the key is mass deployed tests. One of the things I would say, sort of coming back to your question, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, uh, we, the, in addition to the therapeutics, uh, the, the, if we had the vaccine timeline aligned a little better, then that would have, uh, you know, could have played a role in this, um, uh, these kinds of decisions. So the, currently, uh, I don't know when a, a, an approved vaccine will be available because it depends on the results. Uh, the, my best guess is still early next year in terms of approval and then sort of starting to vaccinate because it takes some time to ramp up, even if uh, there is a parallel production investment going on. But the results are uh, expected in November or, you know, that's uh, the current estimate. The, the trials have just started, the phase right. three trials in the U.S. And those are the ones. I think we should filter other noise uh, about like sort of vaccine from Russia, et cetera, because for good reason, we have regulatory safeguards that never did a phase three trial. They vaccinated very few people under experimental conditions and now they're mass deploying. No, we don't have that system, and for good reason that uh, we we do test our vaccines so that we are able to say that they are safe and effective. Yes. So based on that timeline, so those results, you know, at the earliest, even just the results will start coming out in November, etc. Um, uh, unless it's such a huge effect that they sometimes stop the trials early um, and and say uh, announce the results. But the best guess is that's when the results will start coming out. And so that's if the alignment was better then that may have, um, you know, and then there's always a lag in terms of deploying, et cetera. At the end, sort of what I, I would say, I you know, just sort of, uh, there was something that was mentioned, uh, uh, the, the, the Big Ten Conference has, uh, you know, um, nixed their football season. Look, uh, the Ivy League doesn't get a lot of respect in football. We did it way back uh, in, <laughs> in July. <laughs> so, Yeah. Uh, uh, but no, but but I think it's 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 good that um, you know college presidents uh, took some time um, in in thinking through the prospects of uh, um, you know to be very honest and, and you know I, I'll get into trouble by saying that I think uh, uh, for some colleges the um, the college uh, the football season is more expendable I wouldn't name names uh, than than other <laughs> colleges so so it's 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 understandable that some some conferences would take. A little bit more time. Uh, I would remind you, Dr. Omer, that the Falcons actually have not one, but two players on the roster that went to Yale University. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of respect for uh, what Yale has produced uh, in the NFL uh, in very recent years. Um, so uh, with that, uh, again, thank you both uh, very much for rejoining us on this podcast. We, we did get a lot of questions, uh, both on... Oh, wait, uh, can I give... Uh, can I give one more oh. patented uh, analogy? Oh, yes, analogy please. Okay, yes, so absolutely. On the, so on the subject of slightly less perfect tests, but that can be uh, distributed much faster, much cheaper, and much more broadly, I would rather field a defense with 12 guys who are decent than five pro bowlers. Hmm. Right? Give me, yeah. give me Pro bowlers on the field, any offense is still going to be able to run me over because I only got five guys. But you give me 12, you spot me an extra guy, I'm going to be able to do a lot more damage, even if not one of those guys is a pro bowler. So right now, we need a big defense with lots of guys. That has to be our priority. And if we can do that, uh, that is going to help us uh, stop the virus from moving down the field. I love it. I love it. Uh, and this is why this is why this is your third time on this podcast. This is why we love having you on. 
uh, both of you uh, as experts, we, we, I know Gina uh, will echo this. We truly value uh, your opinions, your uh, expert opinions uh, on these matters uh, as we head into what is inarguably one of the weirdest NFL seasons I think we'll ever encounter. Um, so Dr. Omer and Dr. Benny, thank you again for joining us. We will provide links uh, in the article um, that will go up at falcoholic.com of where you can find these fine gentlemen on social media uh, and you're probably seeing them and hearing them in a lot of places these days, uh, and for good reason, you can tell. Uh, so for Gina Thomas, uh, Dr. Saad Omer, and Dr. Zach Benny, this is Dave Walker. Thank you guys for tuning in. Talk to you next time.